Hello and welcome to Dragon Samaris, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today I'm joined as always by Greg. Hey there. And we will be reviewing Shadow Rift. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, I haven't actually had a chance to play a lot of board games lately. Been busy at work and just had a lot of stuff going on. But I have actually played a session of my Call of Cthulhu campaign, being run by a friend of ours, and played in by several other friends of ours. Yep. So that was interesting. I like the system. It's it's deep percentile based, and you have skills ranging from 1 to 100, obviously. And in order to succeed, you have to roll at or below whatever your skill is. So rather than being a system like D&D or Pathfinder where the the difficulty of a thing is based on, you know, some value inherent to the test that's being made, it's more of a, you know, just what are your character's aptitudes? What are they good at? They can probably succeed it, whatever that is. So it, it keeps it a little bit more freeform. However, there are a lot of skills, which means it's hard to be good at everything. You kind of have to specialize. And even if you specialize out to like 65, you know, you're still failing you know 30 percent of the time so but it's an interesting system and i like it i like the way that progression works there's no traditional levels instead what you do is each time you either critically succeed by rolling a one to five or succeed at a important skill check something that advances the plot or saves your life literally things like that you put a check mark next to that skill and then at the end of each session you roll a test on that skill and if you fail that test, you increase its value by 1d10. So the idea is that the higher your skill gets, the harder it is to get better because you're starting to learn almost everything there is to know. So it's a really sort of natural progression that I, I think I appreciate a lot conceptually. In practice, it's a little bit tough because we've gone through probably five sessions now, and I don't think I've increased more than one skill mm. ever um, yeah. just because, you know, it's hard enough critically succeeding or succeeding at plot relevant things because there's only so many opportunities to do that each game and then on top of that you have to fail the role which of course i fail roles all the time during session and then when it comes time to increase my skill i succeed with flying colors so execution wise it's a little tough but conceptually i love it so. yeah it sounds like it uh, i mean i've never played call of cthulhu but it has always been an interesting game and I never really knew how the progression worked, so I think that that's a really cool system. Very curious to see, you know, how how it go, keeps going forward. Maybe you'll get a spurt of, you know, good luck. I can only hope. Good and bad luck at the same time, where good luck in some in the roles during the game and bad luck when you get back. Right. After the yeah. Game. Yeah. Because you need a little of both. You just need them at the right times. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. That's cool. I was actually playing Bang the Dice Game. Okay. So. I got to bring that to table. I taught a few of my friends that, and they really enjoyed it. Uh, so it's the kind of thing where you can pick up and play, and most people are, get it pretty quickly. Um, it's easy, fun, fast, yeah, and just a good, quick game for you know family get-together and that yeah. kind of stuff. And very portable, too. Extremely portable, extremely portable, and you know, it has some fun flavor and like the different characters and enough replayability that everyone can get a different character a few times and... You know, be the sheriff, not be the sheriff, the renegade, or like the deputy, or anything like that. So, there's a lot of different things that you can do in the game itself. So, I I really enjoyed it. That's good. That's good. And then we, in addition to the games that we've played in, we've each had some experience with our respective D and D campaigns. 
yes. recently. Um, you had a chance to play. Yeah, I actually got to play in two different D&D games. We're playing 5e for both of them. One of them is the main one where I'm playing Kemroft. We had a very big boss battle the other day, and we managed to kill a Mind Flayer. Nice! Which, yeah, it was it was quite a battle. We That's pretty scary. Our sorceress go down to almost death. Someone brought her back, and luckily, because it was her magic missiles that actually uh, did the fi- uh, final blow. Nice. And had she not done that, then Alus, the fighter, he would have probably been taking 10d10 points of damage from his brain being sucked out by the mind flare. I'm going to guess that even as a fighter, that's not something he was likely to survive. He was at one hit point. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he was in a little bit of a tough situation. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it, it was it was cool. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and now we have some really cool, unique items. It was interesting because, you know, we had the deck of many things that came out a few sessions ago. Right, I remember that. And so everyone has their own little, like, extras right now and that kind of stuff. I'm trying to figure out what to do with mine because I got money, pretty much. I mean, Uh, mean, like, it's it's good. It's it's useful. It's just one thing is that my character is definitely underpowered in a lot of ways because I'm multiclassed. Sure. Uh, so I have a lot of versatility, but not as much like combat power and that kind of stuff. And just like, in in terms of raw, just being able to like do well. Yeah, he's been a little bit hit or miss. But there are a few things that I'm looking at. Helm of Comprehend Languages, for example, that would be very useful and very thematic for my character to get. So. Sure. Yep. I'm definitely looking at some of those things. Just got to steer the party towards the metropolis so you can get them all. Yep, exactly. Figure out some way of doing that and making sure that they still don't kill me for a little while longer. <laughs> that, that would also be good. Having your own party kill you is generally regarded as a bad thing in most yeah. role-playing situations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, We'll see. I think it's, it's going pretty well. And then I also got to play in a one-shot so we're starting we have like a league of one-shots now yeah that's right and we're doing it in an interesting way almost similar to like the pathfinder society or the uh, dnd like organized play mm-hmm. in that everyone is just getting their characters and they're persistent in the universe Okay. So, like, you know, however many one-shots you can go to, your characters get experience for that. Like, not everyone stays at the same level and that kind of stuff. It becomes a little bit more varied. That's really cool. people just go through, and some people GM, some people don't. If you GM, your character actually does get all the experience that the other characters get. Sure. So it's an incentive to actually GM. And so it also gives other people the chance to try. So the session that I went to was run by one of our friends who had never GM'd before. So. Okay. Yeah. Sort of just a low stress environment where you can mm-hmm. test out those skills and exactly get yeah. some feedback. And it was really enjoyable. It was a fun session where we narrowly escaped an encounter with an archmage who had ninth level spells when we were fifth level. So when the spell is almost double your level, I was about to say, yeah, I feel like there's a metric for whether or not you should be fighting this wizard, and that metric is can they cast a spell that is a level higher than your character level. Yeah, yeah. So we managed to like, you know, talk our way out of that stuff and we had some really interesting role play opportunities and threw our GM for a loop a few times. So that that was fun. I really d- did enjoy it. 
But you also got to do some character creation, right? I did, yeah. So I'm going to be running one shot of my own uh, for a friend of ours who, when I started planning this one shot, had never played D&D. Now she's actually participated in this League of One Shots that you mentioned. So that pressure is off the table. But she still wanted to play in one that I created and ran. So I've been putting together some ideas for that. And I met with some of the players just this past weekend in order to create some characters. So the party's shaping up pretty nicely. We've got a rogue. We've got a cleric, paladin. No, excuse me, a sorcerer, a paladin, and a bard. So we've got one, possibly two more people who need to create characters, depending on availability. And we'll see how that shapes up. I'm excited to be sort of back in the GM saddle. This isn't something that I've done in a while. And it's also not something that I've ever done from scratch in 5th edition. There was the one time where I covered for you at mm-hmm. uh, Labyrinth yeah. running a campaign, so I'm sort of familiar with the system, but this is going to be my first time building my own unique mm-hmm. NPCs. It's going to be my first time creating encounters and scenarios using the tools presented in 5th in edition. So that's pretty exciting. I've liked what I've interacted with so far. Should be fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Well, there you have it. That's a look at what we will be playing. Oh no! Haventown is under attack by invading monsters. Quickly, we must review Shadowrift and seal it away forever. And then let's let's begin. First, let's talk about the game mechanics. It's, it's okay, you can put the voice away, Jake. Never! <laughs> Alright, uh, alright. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, mechanically, Shadowrift is a cooperative deck-building game. So each player starts with their deck of ten cards. Pretty standard. Some of them are purchasing power, some of them are attacks. And you draw five cards to play each turn, and then build your deck up over time. So all of this is very expected from a a deck-building game. Yeah, exactly. Very much so. It's You have in the middle the cards that you can purchase. There are some that are the standard cards, the coins, the might, the seals, and Strikes. uh, the, the strikes. So there's that. And then you have the other ones, which are randomized game game to game. Right, and so each of the sort of scenarios that you can play through has its own recommended list of eight different cards that are all themed around a particular thing. Um, But you can also, you know, if you've played it a bunch, you can say, you know what, let's try it with this sort of composition and put together something that you feel is most appropriate and most powerful, or even something that you just think would be interesting and want to try it out. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about actually how the game plays and how how a turn works because i think that's the best way of getting through the game definitely so first things first you draw cards that is the beginning of the game you take five cards certain cards do let you draw more uh, so you have to keep an eye out for those those would be the might and the heroism cards which we'll discuss in a little bit right after that the town gets refreshed so the important thing here is that you have a town deck now this is the town that uh, that you are trying to defend Haventown, as they call it. So, bit of a misnomer, really. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, you know. Just like, what is a sanctuary in Diablo? Yeah. So, you have Haventown, and you have to pretty much have villagers that, that are in the town each turn. And there are some that are out and about and going to help you in some way. Mm-hmm. You draw five cards from the village deck, and you have to actually do them in order. Because for certain cards, it really does matter who comes out first. And they are out. These villagers can, at points, give you actual bonuses. 
but also this is the town that you're trying to defend and if ever you have a, a village full of corpses well you failed right this is more likely than it sounds your villagers are going to die a lot yes and that brings us to the second part which is the uh, travelers right so at the beginning of each turn after the town refreshes the travelers also refresh and these are sort of wandering people who can join your village as long as you entice them to stay some of them can be enticed using prowess and others you have to pay them coins but once they do they're added to your town deck and they can be drawn on subsequent turns this is is a pretty big advantage because one it means you have more living villagers and fewer corpses and two a lot of the traveling villagers have more powerful bonuses than your starting villagers they're more powerful when used later on in the hero phase of the turn and so it becomes sort of a a snowball effect if you can keep the traveling villagers alive you can get more power out of each turn on the other hand if your villagers even your starting villagers die they go to the Traveler deck rather than being removed from play. So there's a chance that you'll see them again and be able to recoup those losses throughout the game. Nothing is actually completely removed from play. Exactly. So you have to remember that even if you do you know, hire another baker, the corpse of the first one is still hanging around in your town deck. So it's still gumming up that deck, still you know causing you to get closer and closer to that one loss condition. Speaking of... Let's talk about monsters. Right. Obviously, in a cooperative game, monsters are going to be a very, very important part. So the monster part of the turn actually takes up a good chunk of it, almost half of the turn. First, monsters move and attack. So this is where the monsters go from the start space. So they have three spaces that they move through, or four technically. Start space, first, second, third. Start space is where they spawn, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But after they spawn, they go, and the next turn, they move to space one. And that activates the power on their card, numbered one. And so you look at the card at the very beginning, even before they spawn, and you know what's coming. And when it goes to one, that power happens something bad usually a villager dying some powers activating or monsters healing themselves so there's always something bad going on then they will move to two the turn after that again similar kind of power three after that and then this is where the interesting part comes out they will leave so after the third time most monsters will actually leave the village and go into the monster power area which feeds into how monsters spawn in the first place right so after each monster has taken their actions sort of in sequence the monsters have a phase in which they gain power and the amount of power that they gain is equal to the number of players plus the number of faction symbols on each monster and power card in the monster power area after that based on the amount of power that they currently have you check to see whether or not mo new monsters spawn so each monster has a power level that it requires before it can hit the field, ranging from 0 up to 8, 9, 10. Obviously, higher power monsters are harder to kill. They tend to have more devastating effects, but they take longer to spawn, so you have more time to prepare. So there's sort of a balance mechanic there, but if you let the monsters rampage all the way through town and then move to the monster power area, you're going to run into this, again, snowballing effect where more monsters means more power, means more monsters quicker, 
and so on and so forth until you're you're probably just dead. Exactly. There are ways to get the monsters out of the monster power area. There are certain villagers who can actually help out with that, as well as the actual seal cards, which you can use to get rid of those monsters, as well as the shadow rifts themselves. But they stay in there for quite a bit, and even a few turns for a more powerful monster can be pretty devastating, because you just start getting more and more monsters, and then you can't spend your action on actually getting rid of the monster. Right. Which brings us to the next part of the game, which is when the heroes actually act. We finally get to do stuff. So after watching monsters come in, rampage, kill your villagers that you just, you know, saw in your deck. And, you know, there was that one left that that was not a corpse in your village. And now you actually get to do something. And on your turn, what you can do is you can buy cards. You can play as many quick actions as you want. And you get one regular action. So all the heroes actually get to almost communally take their turns. It's not like, you know, you take your full turn, then I take my full turn. No, I can take an action, you can take a quick action, the third person can take, you know, a buy action to, you know, get a coin, then give that coin to me to get buy buy something else. You know, there are a lot of things that you can do, and they do get pretty jumbled together. But everyone has to make sure that they only take one full action, and that you can only give coins to other people. You cannot give items, you cannot give prowess, you cannot give any of the other things. Right. And so this whole aspect of not having a proper turn order and instead players and heroes take their turns communally is one of the things that really makes the game function because you have so many different types of actions, not just attacks, but also sort of um, buffs, heals, support actions that play off of other things. You know, there might be an attack that says, if you are not the first hero to attack this monster this turn, gain additional benefit. So there's all sorts of things that make it very important to kind of bounce around and really communicate very well. Communication is a big aspect of this game, making sure that you talk about, this is what I can do, this is what I plan to do, and this is when I plan to do it in order to optimize how much you're getting out of each turn. So then, once you've sort of done that, taken your actions, decided where they they work best, you also have the chance to purchase. So, as I mentioned, there's a couple of different types of currencies. There's prowess, which is represented by a little banner. This is usually what allows you to buy things like maneuvers, spells, anything that involves being good at doing things usually involves purchasing prowess. There are also coins, which can be purchased for prowess. Not sure exactly how that works, but coins can then be spent on other things like loot and recruiting villagers and walls as well. So coins are very important because they work for some of the more permanent aspects of the game. And then finally, the other type of currency is magic. So a lot of actions that are spells, so your fireballs, heals, seal, things like that, they'll have a sigil up in the right corner that means that they can be spent as magic. Now, the only thing that I'm aware of in the game that requires magic to buy are walls, the two magical forms of walls, magic barriers, and shields. However, you don't have to just spend currency to buy new cards. You can also spend currency to buff the actions that you take. So again, fireball, You play it as an action, and it's a major action, which means it's the only thing you can do per turn. So if you have other spells that are full actions, 
Those are wasted if you're not going to spend them to buy a wall. But what you can do is spend them in order to add extra hits to your fireball. So you can sort of increase the efficiency of your actions by spending currency, which is really cool and makes it so that even if you couldn't necessarily buy the thing that you had your eye on, you can still get some usefulness out of those currencies. Exactly, exactly. And this is also the part of the game where the villagers can come to help the heroes, pretty much. So depending on who's out, you can have a lot of different powers, and each hero can call upon one villager to assist them. So if you call upon the farmer, you get one extra prowess. If you call upon the merchant, he gives you a coin. If you call upon the gravedigger, he goes ahead and buries one of the bodies if you pay him. And so each, each one of the villagers has his or her own action that they can do. And they can be extremely useful and even like pivotal on a, in a turn where it goes from a turn that you can't do anything to a turn where you can actually buy certain things and actually improve your deck. And it's really important to also communicate about who uses what and when. So there is the innkeeper, for example, and he lets you heal wounds that are in your discard pile. But say you just shuffled your deck and it's you know st sitting full on one side of you, you don't really have wounds. And, but you, Greg, for example, do have wounds. And someone's going to try to use the innkeeper, but it doesn't make sense to use it until after the attacks have gone through because then people will have wounds in their discard pile and they can get rid of them immediately. And there are a lot of different things that synchronize just like that. So, you know, the bard with killing monsters, you get extra heroism and other things like that. So it's really strategic. You really have to talk to the other people at the table and really know what other people can do and what, you know, they're expecting still in their deck. So maybe if something can be drawn they should get it and that kind of stuff. Right, and I'm glad you mentioned wounds because this isn't something that we've talked about yet. When you take your actions, especially attack actions, you're going to be putting hits on monsters in order to deal damage to them. Now, there's two types of attacks. You can have melee attacks and ranged attacks. And if you at any point make a melee attack against a monster, you take a wound, which doesn't do anything bad to you, but it gums up your deck. You know, wounds are to heroes what corpses are to the town deck. They just mean they're cards that you hit that don't give you any sort of benefit. So wound management, and whether that's prevention or removal, is a, a very important mechanic throughout the game. Exactly, exactly. And this also makes it so that sometimes you're going to get a hand that you have, like, you know, all wounds or, you know, other afflictions depending on the monsters that you're facing and the factions. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about real quick is the heroism. So heroism is a, the reward for killing the monsters. And what a reward it is. It is really, you feel like you've earned it. So first of all, when you kill a monster, uh, depending on how many faction symbols they have, so how many power points they would have added to the, uh, to the pool for the monsters, that's how many heroism tokens are granted to the team. So the first hero to kill any monster is the first one to get heroism. But then after that, it actually goes around in a clockwise order so that everyone gets some and it's distributed pretty evenly. And heroism can be used for three things. It is a coin that, that you can just draw from your deck, which is awesome because normally they cost at least two, uh, two prowess. It can be counted as one magic sigil, so you can use it for that. And it can also be used as a, as a prowess. 
And along with all that, you also get to draw an extra card whenever you, you have one in your hand. So they are extremely powerful. It's and so good. The more you have, the, the better it is, really. So in the first edition, Shadow Rift, which we played, the rules did not say to limit the heroism, but actually in the later editions, they realized that it was a little bit broken when, like, you know, the two of us had, I don't know, like seven or eight heroism each. Yeah, I think deck. like a third of my deck was heroism. Yeah, so you're technically in the newer version only supposed to have up to five, which makes it even more, like, you know, of a good resource, like really tight, but very valuable. But so all of these and the mechanics of how you run through a turn, but how do you win? Well, according to the rules, first of all, it's not likely. And two, it's very, very difficult. So according to the rules, the ways that you might win are by sealing the Shadow Rifts. And when you have the monster deck at the beginning of the game, you shuffle one Shadow Rift into that deck for each player. So as you're going through, you're killing monsters, you're whittling down the deck. Eventually, you'll come across these Shadow Rifts. Once they spawn, you hit them with a seal spell and empowered seal spells specifically, so you really have to prep for them, and then that's sealed. So if you do that between two and six times, depending on the number of players, you win the game. Now the other way to win the game is by building all eight walls. Walls are something that we've mentioned previously. You can purchase them for exorbitant amounts of money and magic, and they actually go into your town deck and have really powerful defensive effects, things like preventing villagers from getting killed, preventing monsters from taking actions, reducing the monster power level so if you can get them early as with everything else in this game seemingly there's a snowball effect of being able to prevent certain things and finally get a foothold but if you wait too long to buy them there's a good chance that you're going to have all your resources all your money wrapped up in just triage you know maintaining your town purchasing things for your deck things like that so it's very important to pay attention to your walls as your alternate win condition Ways that you lose, on the other hand, if at any given time you have five corpses on the field and no living villagers in your town, you lose. If at any given time all of the corpses in the corpse deck are in your town, you lose. And then finally, there are just some monsters that will hit the field and say, if this monster gets to step three, you lose. <laughs> so you really got to keep on top of it. Town management is something that's extremely important for the game, but... If you can manage to pull it off, it's very rewarding. Exactly, exactly. So with all that being said, what do you think of the, the game as a whole? I like it. I think it's very well designed. Um, it is punishingly difficult, but you can really tell that that's by design. You know, there's never a point where you feel like you're in control. You know, it's very precarious. It's almost like a souped up version of Pandemic in that way. You know, you're always one turn away from losing. So you really have to stay on top of your game and make sure that you're not resting on your laurels at any point because you've got to power through until the end. Yeah, I, I agree. Definitely one of those games that you're always at the edge of your seat, you know, just not sure whether or not you're going to lose with the next card drawn. I, there were so many times that we were going through our town deck and it's just like, is this going to... That's a corpse. That's another corpse. Oh, yeah. That's another corpse. We need a villager. We need a villager. Oh, that's a vagrant. We hate him, but at least he's a villager. Okay, right. let's go. Yeah, we had four corpses so many times. Yeah. We, we were just so close to losing all the time, in spite of the fact that, you know, we were paying the Gravedigger. We were using the resurrection spells. Like, we were on top of it, 
and we still almost lost all the time. Exactly, and and that's actually something that I really like about these kinds of games because I love a brutal co-op. I think that it's a lot of fun to try to go and beat this game that's like hard and just trying to destroy you. So I really enjoyed it. There were some issues with some of the rules being a little bit fiddly. There's some things that you know I wasn't quite clear on, and I looked at the second edition rules. They seem to have cleared up a little bit of it at least. Yeah. But there are still some things with like the factions of timing. For example, with the uh, when do the zombies actually come into play? When you have the you know uh, one of the other creatures there that says if at any point there's a corpse in your town, make it into a zombie. Right. Does it actually take an action that turn? Does it not? There are just a few things like that that I would have liked to have some errata on. But for the most part, I thought the the game itself was a lot of fun. And I think I'm going to go and give it a bite. Yeah, it is a great game. I'm probably going to be a little bit more reserved. I'm just going to give it a play it, as I mentioned before we were recording. It feels to me sort of like a game where you finish it and then you're done. You know, you you have the achievement of having beaten each of the factions once, and then you say, all right, cool, I've done that, I've had that experience, I never have to play this game again. Maybe that's just my mentality. Um, It's possible that other people would get, you know, sort of a a higher replay out of it, but for me, it's a play. Well, there you go. Let's compare this to a few other games now. I wanted to start by mentioning Ghost Stories. I know I mentioned this recently, but Ghost Stories is another brutal tough as nails game where you're working together to try to prevent these ghosts from pretty much taking over and just like shadow rift you have the planning aspect of it you know that the ghosts are coming they're moving in a certain amount of time and you have to really manage that whole triage of you know these things are going to happen but you know i need to work on my goals in order to finish the game in order to win the game but you know at the same time this thing's about to go destroy you know one of the most more important buildings over here or this thing's about to kill one of the other players or something like that so it has a very similar feel and i highly recommend it if if you liked uh, ghost stories and you like deck building games definitely check out shadow rift And speaking of deck building games, if that's an aspect of this game that you're into, or if that's something that you like, uh, Ascension is very, very similar to basically a competitive Shadow Rifts. Um, It's got a lot of the same sort of deck building elements with a focus on aggression, you know, because Ascension does still have monsters in the center row that you have to fight, as well as things that you have to purchase using energy, unlike a lot of other deck building games that mostly focus on the purchasing and on the building so ascension is one of those games that i think mirrors shadow rift in a lot of ways just again with a competitive focus rather than a cooperative focus and i'm just going to mention really quick because uh this is a blind suggestion but the legendary encounters games so there's legendary encounters alien predator firefly all those They are also cooperative deck building games. So if that's the kind of thing that you like, you might enjoy those other themes as well. So I would recommend checking them out. And there you have it. That's our review of Shadowrun. Thank you very much for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. As always, WashingtonCon tickets are still on sale. So head over to WashingtonCon.com to get yours now. We hope to see you there. It's going to be a great time. And other than that, tune in next week when we review 10 Minutes to Kill.